HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday on the Heritage Radio Network in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, from approximately 12 to 12.45. Here today is usual. Oh, let me show you the number first. Yeah. All right. Calling all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We'll take any kind of question. Anything you got. Whatever you got, we'll take it. Anyway, here in the studio, uh, joined as usual uh, with uh, Nastasha. The Hammer Lopez, who uh, uh, joined me for my second, my Sunday Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Where we cooked uh, Patrick's uh, Heritage Guajalote. That, for those of you that don't speak that, that means bobble, turkey, right? <laughs> so we cooked up a Heritage turkey. Hey, delicious, right? What's the name of the farmer again? Reese? Sorry, I'm slow here. Frank Reese. Frank Reese, yeah. So it was a, it was a delicious turkey. I think I didn't cook the... Um, the uh, dark meat long enough. So here's what I did, folks. Uh, so I have to admit, I was going up to Mystic, Connecticut, where my in-laws live, and uh, they'd already bought a turkey by the time I told them I had a turkey. So I was like, you know what? Crap on it. I'm going to let them cook the turkey, do whatever they want. It was good, by the way. They didn't horribly overcook it. They brined it, thankfully, which uh, even though I love my man Harold McGee, you know I love my man Harold McGee. He says not to brine the turkey because it makes the drippings too salty. I disagree. Mm. I disagree because I'd rather not have my breast meat be horribly mangled and overcooked, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Anyway, bubble. Uh, you know what? Also, uh, like traditional oven roasting, it does make a delicious crispy skin, which is hard to emulate using the other techniques. I mean, my exoskeleton technique, I was able to get a crispy skin, but you know, I'm kind of a stickler for such things. But traditional oven ro- and skin is delicious, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Los Bestos. And this morning on the subway on 44th Street, there was a funeral for a police officer. You know, How is this? Germane? You know what they were playing? What <laughs> bagpipes? Oh, uh, all right. So th- this fallen police officer has nothing at all to do with crispy turkey skin. Has more to do with uh, the bagpipes that we were talking about at the end of last week's program. Which, uh, by the way, I never said we're not played at funerals. Nastasha's opinion is that they're exclusively played at funerals because the next time she saw them play was at a funeral. It reinforces in her completely illogical mind that that means that they're only played at funerals. 
go to Scotland. I count the score, Nastasha, one, Dave, zero. <laughs> yeah. wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. You, you know what, you know what else you, you, know, know, you know what else people do the day that they go to a funeral? They pee. Does that mean they only pee for funerals? Listen, you guys got to learn your logic. This is stuff I'm trained in. Listen, Dave, go to some weddings in the city. Find the, find the backpacks. Look, police officers and firefighters, when they, when they are are killed or passed away and they have a function. Yes, they have bagpipes at those funerals. And because you are completely uncultured and don't understand the ways of Scotland, right, you assume that that's the only time that it happens. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Look, don't get me started. You know, I took bagpipe lessons. You know what? I like how she messes around with bagpipes. I took bagpipe lessons. I owned a set of bagpipes. I no longer, uh, you know, I, I didn't really progress because, like, you start with a thing called a chanter, and you learn to play on, on the chanter, which is, you know, soft and reasonable, and then you move up to your first set of real pipes. And when I moved up to my first set of real pipes, they weren't a very good set of pipes. Uh, you can, you know, they were a cheap set of pipes, so they didn't sound, they wouldn't have sounded good even if I was good, which I wasn't. As soon as I start squeezing on the bag and those drones start wailing out, Jen's like, nope, you're done. <laughs> Jen's my wife. Anyway, uh... Uh, I hope she hasn't listened because she'll get mad at me for telling that story. She always, she always gets mad at me because she thinks I tell stories that make her seem like an ogre. But really, it's just I'm unreasonable and she's a reasonable person. Mm-hmm. Really is how it works. Anyway. So don't talk crap about bagpipes. I'm warning you. I will go off. Anyway. Uh, you know, look, if one, of you, if one of you wants to call in and talk crap about the bagpipes, go ahead. Let's see where that, let's see where that gets you. Anyway. Um, where was I? Delicious turkey skin. So anyway, so uh, when I got back on Sunday and I was having the second Thanksgiving, uh, I had two problems. Once we had a, lo- a bunch of vegetarians over, so we had to make a vegetarian stuffing. And of course, like in my mom's style stuffing, the, the prime component is uh, sage uh, sausage. So we had to substitute that. I thought it was a passable substitution, right? Mm-hmm. I have to admit it was a passable substitution. Nastasha ate it, and she's not, she's not even, folks, making her vegan face. Of course, it wasn't vegan because it was full of eggs and all sorts of other mm-hmm. great stuff. Butter. Uh, anyway. I thought it was pretty good. But I didn't cook the turkey in uh, Thanksgiving fashion, meaning I didn't uh, feel a need to cook it whole. So I broke it into uh, dark meat, light meat, cooked them at two different temperatures in a Ziploc bag in butter, pulled them out when they were still hot, let the skin dry off so that I could crisp them up, threw them in the oven to crisp off the skin after they'd cooled down. My oven was acting up on me and went – I had it set at 600 Fahrenheit and it went down to 400 without me noticing because somehow uh, one of the controls had gotten switched off. So I was kind of irritated. And I then had to pull out a blowtorch to, to crisp it before I threw it back in for the final crisping. I don't like blowtorch crisping because it tends not to dry out the skin and make it crackly the right way. It just browns it up a little bit, which I find – irritating and also at least torch taste so i shot the torch through a uh um, a nichrome wire screen to act as a kind of a flame arrester and also a stink arrester from arresting the stink that comes out of propane when you shoot it onto uh uh turkey skin but it was pretty good i thought mm-hmm. i could I, took, I could have taken the uh the dark meat about a degree higher or something like that I think I think I could have done it about a degree higher, but the breast meat was delicious. Uh, duck meat—I mean, the uh, dark meat tasted good. It just what you know, whatever. What do you eat on Thanksgiving proper, Nastasha? Some overcooked turkey at some friend of a friend's house. Wow, friend of a friend overcooked turkey. Is there anything worse than an overcooked turkey? This is why people think that turkey is bad because they eat only overcooked turkey. And turkey, everyone's like, man, I just I eat it because it's tradition. No, no, turkey is delicious if you don't overcook it. Turkey is delicious, delicious. 
thing. Okay, today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast. So who's an enthusiast? It's not a home cook, by the way. See, after you read this a bunch, you start thinking about it. When you're just reading it, you're not thinking, but then when you read it a bunch of times, you're like, home cook or enthusiast? Like they're at home, but they're not enthusiastic and they're using it anyway. Anyway, whatever. And most only cost around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world. By the way, we verified that, as we said before. New Zealand, I think, mm-hmm. right? Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries Enzorbit tapioca maltodextrin, which allows you to transform fat-based products like olive oil or peanut butter into a powder or a paste, actually. I mean, peanut butter is already a paste, but you can turn olive oil into a paste. This powder retains the flavor of the original product and dissolves when placed on your tongue, delivering it to your taste buds. Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $35 or more before next week's show will get a free package of Enzorbit to experiment with over the holidays. Holidays, I guess, yeah, we got some more holidays. Simply use the promo code CI64 when placing your order online at ModernistPantry.com. Visit ModernistPantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. Tapioca maltodextrin, uh, Enzorbit brand tapioca maltodextrin is an interesting thing. So basically, there's uh, like a whole, you know, years of cooks who just say, hey, I need some tapioca maltodextrin. And, you know, tapioca, I'm like, what are you going to do with it? And they're like, I'm going to make the powder. I'm like, don't ask for tapioca maltodextrin. You need Enzorbit from National Starch, which is very specific tapioca maltodextrin, which is dex- tapioca maltodextrin is you take tapioca starch and you break it down into smaller pieces. Eventually you get down to a place where the starch, mo- the starch molecules are broken down to something called maltodextrins. Enzorbit is derived from tapioca, but is a very – its main purpose in life is not this, the turning oils into powders, but it's a, a bulking agent. It's extremely light. Like, uh, you know, the, the, a pound of Enzorbit is bigger than, a, you know, a pillowcase. It's huge, right? It's really lightweight stuff. So it's a bulking agent. That's what it really does. And starches are interesting because they're a helix, right? A native starch molecule before it's been cooked out is a helix, and the outside of the helix is water-loving, and the inside of the helix so – so it'll, you know, t- you know, water's fine with it. And the inside is uh, oil-loving, right? Water-hating. And so what happens is, is you mix um, ensorbit with a fat or an oil. That oil gets complexed inside the starch, right, inside the helix. But because it's not glomming on the outside, it retains a lot of its bulk density and it turns out to be a powder. Then as soon as you... Uh, apply water in the form of your mouth, or if you try to make a powder out of something with water in it, which doesn't work, ding, 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 right? It immediately dissolves and turns back into almost nothing. So you take a very small amount of maltodextrin, which is relatively tasteless, and you make a powder out of an oil, and then it dissolves instantly in your mouth. That's how it works. But please don't uh, try to make a powder out of an oil by just saying tapioca maltodextrin, because odds are it won't work. There's many, 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 many tapioca maltodextrins in the world, and most of them won't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just Nastasha's like, I really don't care. I don't care. That's what she's saying to herself. I really, I just, I just don't care. Uh, at least that, that's what I'm reading out of this, guys. All right. Now, because I'm stupid, uh, I didn't have my, um, 
I didn't have my thing open. So I'm going to have to flail around here for a minute while I search for – oh, there it is. Wait. While I search for my questions for the day. And you know, I wouldn't have to search for my questions for the day, people, if you were to call in some questions, right? Mm-hmm. Just saying. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. So starting out. Oh, there's a caller. Oh, there's a caller? <laughs> hey, caller, you're on the air. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, I have a quick question about getting kind of like a crust on a sous vide uh, veal rack. Okay. So I want it to have like a herb crust or some kind of other crust after it's finished cooking. How should I try to do that? Okay. So there's a couple of things. Um, are you, are you going to use actual uh, sous vide in a vacuum bag or are you going to use low temp like in a Ziploc or something like that? Um, I was going to sous vide in a vacuum bag. Okay. Uh, you, I mean, you're you're going to have to... Um, do it like a test or see what you feel. If if you actually uh, put the herb crust on beforehand, you're going to get uh, quite a bit of the penetration of the herb flavor into the meat uh, from the procedure itself, right? So the, the, the question you're going to have to ask yourself is, um, you know, do you want that much herb into the surface of the meat? And if you do, fine. Put it on beforehand. If you don't, don't, okay? The second thing is how long are you going to cook it? Um, uh, in the bag? Yeah. Um, probably about three hours at like 56, 57. Are you going to serve it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 56, yeah. Are you going to serve it the same day? Um, yeah. Okay. So what I would do is, is, uh, as soon as you pull the meat out of the circulator, right, I would cut the bag open, put the thing on a rack, and start the outside to dry off a little bit. You know what I mean? Uh, yep. And let, let, it, let it dry off a little bit and maybe even pat, towel it, pat it, and maybe even take a hair dryer, dry off the outside to, to get some of the, uh, like the tacky moisture off the outside. Then rebrush with oil or whatever you got, right? Uh, and, and then, uh, you know I mean? Like, I would deep fry it. That's me. Because nothing's, like, I'm telling you, I, I can't tell you, I have done bunches of racks of uh, lamb, goat, whatever, <clears throat> and, uh, you throw that sucker in the deep fryer after it comes out of the bag if you've let it dry off properly, and it's it's good business because it just puts an instant crust all the way around everything. There's no kind of – there's no problems with it at all. Do you know what I mean? It's just it, – yeah. it's a good technique. So if you can deep fry it, deep fry it. Uh, um, I don't have a deep fryer, but I, I do have range, or I probably have an induction burner that I could use. To... How, many, how many portions are you making? Uh, 80. Ooh, yeah. You're going to have a problem up because the problem is if you're doing 80 portions, um, you're going to um, – if you're doing 80 portions, you're going to have an issue with um, the oil getting really crappy if it's on a range because it's just going to keep going up and down and up and down and up and down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean I could set up like two or three hotel pans. Yeah. I mean uh, is it a good oven, or like a really hot oven? Mm, probably. Yeah, I can, get, I can probably get – pretty good broiler if I, I mean in the broiler I mean in, in that case I might use a different thing from what I just said I might leave them in the bag let them cool down uh, pull them out dry them really thoroughly then maybe like hair dry them put them on racks uh, like over the top of a roaster uh, and then just throw them into a 
like let them basically cool down way down you know what i mean throw them into a screaming oven but i, I don't like i don't you know if the problem is if they're too down in a pan or if they're like sitting in a bu- with a bunch of potatoes you get a bunch of blonde spots around where they are so you can put it on a rack to keep it up so that the air can get all around them in a screaming hot oven and then uh, all you're doing is looking for a nice crust formation on it and, and then you can pull it, and you won't have radically overcooked the inside. And some of your people might like it even more because it's going to have more of a traditional texture on the outside. It's going to have more of that like overcooked zone. So uh, you know, in general, I call that technique sous vide for insurance. And by that, I mean you've, you've ensured that the center of the meat is cooked properly, and then you just focused on crust formation. And as soon as the thing is brown on the outside and crusty, you pull it, and the inside's going to be good. Great. Um, have a should I pre-sear it before I put it in the bag? I will. I mean, I almost always do. I don't know because uh, I think it's going to speed up crust formation afterwards. Um, okay. But, you know, I've run some tests. Uh, we run tests every time I teach a sous vide class. And typically the crust formation is marginally better in the one that's seared before and after. But, I mean, don't salt it beforehand before you cook it. You know what yep. I mean? Um, because that, you know, uh, that's going to, um, make it kind of cured. I think, <coughs> uh, <coughs> the searing beforehand, um, I like it, but I mean, it's a matter of personal, personal taste. I, I haven't done, I know that it does speed the browning on the second sear, but I don't know by how much. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, speaking of salting, I was thinking about maybe trying a phosphate brine with it. Would that be a horrible idea or? Uh, I mean, the thing is, 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 is it's gonna f- it'll hold more water that way, but you, you're going to go sous vide, so you're not going to overcook it. You have no reason to inject more water into it. Okay. And it's going to firm up the meat as well as – it's going to firm it as well as uh, increase water. So since you're going through the trouble of sous videing it, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't phosphate it up. Okay. Great. Well, that was really helpful. Hey, good luck. Let us know how it goes. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Okay. Uh, Teddy, uh, Teddy DeVico writes in and his, uh, his blogspot.blog is teen, teen chef Teddy, but he's been writing it for a couple of years. I wonder whether he's still a teenager yeah. and he has to change his, uh, he has to change his blog then. Anyway. Uh, Hey Dave and Nastasha. Don't ask Nastasha. She doesn't care about your problems, Teddy. Just me. <laughs> Just kidding. No, you're not. What are you saying? You don't care about his problems? Is that what you're saying? I do. Okay. All right. I need help making sweet potato fries. No matter what I do, blanch fry fry or just fry fry, the fries get too much color before they get crispy. I know this happens because of sweet potatoes' high sugar and moisture content, but I cannot figure out how to get around this predicament. Maybe a soak in acidulated uh, solution uh, first, then roast, then fry fry technique would work. What are your thoughts? Thanks for the help. Well, it's a true story, uh, Teddy. It's uh, sweet potato fries. Uh, they get too much color to them, right? So... There are a number of things that are done uh, basically because of a thing called reducing reducing sugars in there that even more than the regular sugar which causes browning, the reducing sugars in it cause browning, um, you know, which is i.e. not sucrose but the you know, invert in it. Uh, so uh, there's been a couple of studies based on trying to get the sugar, total sugar content of the uh, – at least of the surface of the potatoes down somewhat. And uh, there's a study that was done where potatoes were soaked uh, by themselves, you know, just in water versus in uh, salt versus in um, in uh, my brain uh, ascorbic acid, which is I think what you're thinking about to stop the browning from taking place, enzymatic browning from. Ta- Whoa! <clears throat> Something just flew into my mouth. Ouch! 
um, right, uh, versus citric acid versus uh, acetic acid vinegar. Interestingly, uh, the most sugar was leached out of the um, potatoes by soaking them in a dilute <coughs> excuse me. That bug really did me wrong. A gnat flew right in my mouth by uh, soaking in um, dilute vinegar, um, right? So here's what I would do. Then a second way to get the sugars out is by blanching. So I would soak these suckers, these potatoes is what I mean, in uh, a vinegar solution after they've been cut for uh, uh, you know, a weak vinegar solution for a couple of hours. I would throw salt in too but just because salt is delicious. Uh, and it also helps with uh, with uh, color problems in French fries, but I don't know why or how. Then um, I would pull them out of that. Then uh, – actually, you know what? You might not want to put the salt because it might reduce the amount of sugars that are pulled out. Yeah, interesting question. Don't know. Have to look at it. Uh, then I would blanch them in water, uh, and that's going to leach out even more sugar. Uh, and then uh, I would go through the um, – two-step frying process. One at a lower temperature to do your cook-through and to form the crust. Pull it out. Let it cool down. (coughs) Bugs! In my throat! And then after that, I would uh, do the final fry to crisp it up. But you do have a tough road to hoe. I was looking this up, actually, and uh, there was an interesting problem where someone was making (coughs) potato chips and they did something completely counterintuitive. Uh, They were trying to minimize uh, oil uh, into the potato chip, which is a horrible idea because oil is delicious in a potato chip, necessary and delicious. But they – check this out. They took the potato after they they had uh, blanched it and dried it, you know, uh, just dried it like on an oven or dehydrator. And they threw it into a sugar solution – sugar solution, strong, like 23% sugar by weight and uh, for two seconds – and then immediately, they let it drain for three seconds and immediately fried it. And they said that it was good. Mm-hmm. They said that it actually uh, – they said it absorbed less oil, which I don't know why I'm interested in that. But uh, the fact that it didn't brown appreciably or didn't scorch in the fryer when they were making potato chips is very interesting to me. The other way, by the way, <clears throat> and I doubt you have access to this because very few people do, to uh, decrease the colors, to decrease the frying temperature of the oil. Uh, but the only way to do that is to what? He's 15, Teddy. Not, was or is? Is, and he's a Taurus. What does that mean, Taurus? I don't know. When is Taurus? April. It's like me and your wife. No. Well, my wife, I think, changed because they changed all the Zodiacs. <coughs> I did not change. I'm still Aries. Anyway, Aries. So, um, okay. So, uh, <coughs> as I was saying before, I was interrupted by this astrological uh, thing. The uh, For Teddy. Oh, all right, all right. Um, so, uh, vacuum frying is the other way to go. So you can reduce the, uh, temperature at which the, at which you can set the oil by reducing the pressure, thereby allowing water to boil up. Because water boiling out of, uh, of your product is what stops the oil from penetrating, right? And, and, and things don't get crispy until the water is left, right? So you can, uh, reduce the temperature at which that happens by putting everything under a vacuum. Problem with that is, is you need some hardcore equipment, and the other problem with it is, is that what typically what happens is, is you fry the thing under a vacuum, you then uh, let the air back in, and whammo, all the oil is injected into the porous section of the fries, and so you get really greasy, soggy fries. So this happens with potato chips, although it's not as big a deal in potato chips, but it happens in French fries all the time, and you're worried about French fries, which is why vacuum frying can be difficult, other than the fact that it's very hard to do. Like the morons that do vacuum, I, I, excuse me, I didn't mean that. The, what's the word for moron that's friendly? 
Nincompoop. Nincompoop. The nincompoops that make kind of the uh, consumer-level vacuum-frying situation didn't put a cold trap in between the fryer and the vacuum pump. So there's no possible way on God's earth that it can actually work as a vacuum fryer because it can't possibly recondense the liquid that it, that it spews off. Uh, so the only way around that is either use a cold trap or use an aspirator pump that uh, can reduce the pressure uh, <clears throat> even when there's water vapor coming out of it all the time. problem with an aspirator pump is, is that if you make a lot of water vapor like you would when you're frying, think of the steam that comes out of a fryer. You're, uh, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's going to start sucking wind and it's going to get up to atmosphere pretty quickly. Anyway, but here's, here's my question, Nastasha, and this is to you since you're the only one that's uh, here, even if you know, only in body. Uh, <laughs> The uh, uh, <clears throat> why don't they do this? Why don't they, uh, towards the end of the frying time, ramp the temperature up and at the same time release the vacuum slowly so that there's always water boiling out of it until they reach atmospheric? Then they should be able to get most of the benefit of vacuum frying. Most of the frying will take place at a lower temperature, right? But uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> at the end, when they're pulling it out of the oil, it's at atmospheric. And so it's not going to get that injection. What do you think? Yeah. Sounds good, right? Mm-hmm. But I, no, no one in the literature has tried uh, something like that. I wonder whether there's a technical problem that makes it impossible. Uh, anyway, apparently Nastasha just slapped her watch, uh, which means that we are going to our first commercial break. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. the cooking issues so the reason we played uh that song from al green is one of the questions i got anonymous was dave what is a cure for a broken heart and i thought that uh, the reverend al green although he provides actually no solutions if you actually listen to the song he provides no solutions but maybe they they didn't finish the sentence and it's like a broken he's like like, how well how can you mend a broken heart and the related question how can a loser ever win Mm-hmm. Right. These are kind of related questions that Al Green asked. I'm saying that their question, maybe they were asking how to put together a broken heart of an animal that they were. Well, that's what I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to assume. Look, I'm not an expert in mending broken hearts, but I am an expert in cooking hearts. So I think I'll, <laughs> I'll shift it to the related question of Dave. How do you cook? How do you cook hearts? 
Or why do you cook hearts? What do you mean weak? First of all, the heart is an extremely underappreciated uh, culinary. I had amazing heart at Mylino. Did you have it that day? No. What, what oh kind of my God. what kind of heart? Pig heart. Yeah, pig heart is good. With peppers and onions. Pepper, peppers and onions. Peppers. <laughs> peppers. Amazing. Sausage and pep and hots. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so uh, it was good. <coughs> so good. How did I they make eat it? it every single day? I don't know. I mean, was it was it was it uh, all moist or was there some crunchy? No, all moist. All moist, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a you know good way to cook heart. Hearts are delicious because they're uh, and and for all of you freaks who don't like fat, uh, you're probably not listening to my show. But if you are, uh, you know, uh, very very lean and very kind of like it's got that really that kind of bloody taste, but without being kind of so bloody the way that like sometimes I like blood sausage, but some people don't like it because of the extreme bloody bloody flavor of it. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. My, you know what my personal favorite heart is? Mm. Chicken hearts. I love them. Chicken hearts. You know, they're so delicious, and yet, like, chicken-hearted means, like, crappy. Like, why would you, why would you, I mean, they're so delicious. Chicken hearts. You like chicken hearts? I don't know if I've had it. Oh, my God. Do I, they taste like duck heart? That's the only heart I've had. Duck heart's delicious, right? It's so good. Yeah, chicken heart is, like, slightly smaller than a duck heart, uh, which means, uh, I don't know, they're slightly smaller. You can eat more of them. I Look, <clears throat> I, I love duck hearts, but I grew up eating chicken hearts. Uh, and my favorite way is to is to see, you know, a giant skewer full of chicken hearts. God knows how, you know. You know think, if, you, if I can get a skewer of chicken hearts, that means there's that many fools out there not eating the hearts of their chicken that they're eating all of those breasts and legs and not eating the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just like it simply like roasted and then, uh, you know, with like some chimichurri sauce or something. This stuff's just so good, chicken hearts. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> you know what? We haven't done a lot of experiment with low temp hearts. I mean, I've done it a couple times at home, but not enough to report mm-hmm. mm, hearts. Anyway, can't mend them, can cook them. Uh, you know, but whoever's out there with a broken heart, time heals all wounds, be- mainly because you die at the end. So... <laughs> You know, in other words, like, that's what makes it tautologically true. <clears throat> tautologically, yeah, it's like it's like uh, it's always true. It can't it can't be any other because uh, we all have a finite existence, so it's always over at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh, heavy, heavy subjects here. Wait, can issues. you just comment on Indie Jesus today? I, I'm not. Well, the show is not the Indie Jesus show. We're talking about the uh, the waiter here who <laughs> is still looking like Jesus came up and someone must have told him. I know he's not a listener. Someone <laughs> told him that we did it because he gave Nastasha the stink eye. But most people give Nastasha the stink eye because she throws off the I hate you vibe. He, he gives most people the stink oh, eye. Oh, really? Really? It's yeah. not us. So how the heck is he Jesus-like if he throws a stink eye? <laughs> Jesus doesn't throw a stink eye. He needs to work on that. It ruins the look. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> a follow-up from Aaron. Hi, Nastasha and Dave. Uh, we called in last week. Uh, when I said I was still loving the show, I didn't mean to say I thought the show would turn to crap. I was just saying. Um, uh, you answered a question of mine before with Harold McGee. At that time, uh, I was blown away that I was able to get expert advice so easily, mainly from McGee, I assume, if he means it's expert advice. Uh, and uh, So anyway, so uh, the question that was asked last week, uh, I think last week or week mm-hmm. before, was on plating. And by the way, thanks for nothing for all you people giving advice to it, you know, for, for plating, because we got zero responses on that, right? Anyway, uh, the local li- his local library is, is uh, pretty well stocked with cookbooks, so you can get ideas there. And he liked the response regarding uh, thinking about the visual aspects slightly earlier during the preparation of the food. 
Uh, I think the first time I think of the visual aspect is uh, I put food on the plate. So it definitely should shift to earlier. I will definitely look at learning specific techniques such as canelling. And uh, ultimately, uh, Aaron hopes uh, that the standard way to get really good at plating is to turn out hundreds of plates of food under the guidance of a chef who has the expertise. Yeah, but it requires you work in a professional kitchen to do that, which is kind of a pain in the pain in the patoot. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I can say patoot on this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, thanks for the follow-up, Aaron. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Here's one for you. Howdy, Dave and Nastasha. My 11-year-old daughter, Sarah Beth, loves your podcast. I didn't realize we were a family show. I like that. Now we have to watch what we say. Well, me and you. You're the only one that's dropped curses on this station. You talked about vaginal... Uh... Listen to yourself. Yeah. Listen to yourself. First of all, I was talking about Lysol, which was an historical reference, and not anything to do with anything, and you just pulled it out apropos of nothing. Uh, Jack, you know, can go over the thing, but I believe Nastasha's the only one that's ever cursed on this program. I've, I've cursed Oh, all right, well. I haven't, which is strange. And because Chris Young has, too. He cursed? Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. Oh, you potty mouth people. My 11-year-old granddaughter, uh, granddaughter. My 11-year-old daughter, Sarah Beth, loves your podcast. She wants to be a chef and go to culinary school someday. We listen to you all on the way to swim practice and back. Nice, swim practice. I wish I knew how to swim. You know how to swim? No, I, I don't. Then the more I try to swim, it's like, it, it's like uh, you'd think, because I'm not exactly the leanest guy in the world, you'd think that I would float like, like, a, like easily. But the more I try and tread water, I, I somehow corkscrew myself into, into the water. And actually, the more I try to tread, the faster I sink. I mean, if you throw me overboard, I, you know, I, can, I won't die right away. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't call myself a swimmer. Anyway, my wife makes fun of me about it constantly. Uh, anyhow, uh, Sarah Beth is doing her science fair. Pro- now you swallowed the bug. No, I'm just sick. Thanks. Thanks for coughing on me with the sickness. Uh, she's doing her science fair project called Make Mine Medium Rare, Heat Conduction in Steak. It's all about determining cooking time for beef steaks to get to medium rare, uh, medium and well done for various thicknesses of steaks. Now listen. You put numbers here, which are the normal numbers for uh, rareness, i.e. medium rare is 145 degrees, medium 155, and well done 170. Let me just say right off the bat, these numbers are like crazy wrong, crazy high. For me, medium rare is not a – 145. Wait. Can't do my, I can't do my math in my head anymore. It's crazy. 57 is 135. So for me, medium rare is more like uh, 135 Fahrenheit in that range. Uh, and all of the temperatures that people register are typically above it. And I don't know why. But if you served me a 145-degree steak medium rare, I'd be like, nah, not so much medium, right? Okay. Uh, we are trying to find out what uh, the relationship is between thickness of steaks and the cooking time to hit those temperatures, all other things held constant. We will be using three boneless cuts of meat, one inch, 1.5 inches, and two inches thick. The bibliography uh, reference for the experiment is from Harold McGee's The Curious Cook, pages 33 through 34. Excellent book, out of print, unfortunately. I keep telling him to bring it back or give, you know, put it on the web or some other kind of crud. Uh, <clears throat> so here's our question. Uh, we are trying to decide the best way to cook the steaks to keep the only variable in the experiment, the thickness of the steaks. There are two suggested ways to cook the meat, boiling them in water or cooking them in a 300-degree oven. Which would be the best method to, uh, to use to control the temperature that the meat is cooked in to keep it exactly the same for all three cuts of meat? We don't have sous vide equipment or anything. We do have a gas range, convection electric oven, and pots to boil in, and a sixth-grade science fair budget. Thank you for the great podcast. Okay, so sixth grade. So here's, here, okay, here's the issue. A couple issues. Let's go into it. One, um, 
the relationship between thickness and to really get the relationship between thickness and how long it's going to take to get to a particular temperature when you're cooking at a particular temperature uh, involves uh, doing some differential equations, which is, you know, hey, you know, when I was growing up, that was well beyond what they taught a sixth grader. Who knows what they teach a sixth grader nowadays? Anyway, you need to know some differential equations for that to, to, to actually calculate it. Um, and then it's done uh, basically comp, you know, on a computer that just does the iterations and does it and finds solutions for it. Um, but roughly, and, and the shape of the meat that you use radically changes uh, the amount of time it takes to uh, for something to get up to temperature. So most things are modeled as either one of three things or something in between. And those three things are flat slab, which is like a steak, right? Or a cylinder, which is like when, I, when you make like a roulade. Or a sphere, which, you know, does a sphere, right? Now... Luckily for you, right? Uh, if well, I should say, luckily for you, I don't know if you have an iPad. If you have an iPad or an iPod, right? Uh, there's someone that wrote a uh, there's someone who wrote an application uh, called sous vide dash. Now it's five bucks, all right. And I have you know, so this is how much I love the listeners here. I spent my own five bucks and I bought the application to look at it, right? And Nastasha, you know that like, getting $5 out of me is like squeezing water out of a rock. You know what I mean? And even Moses had trouble with that. You know, Moses, right? Mos- the Moses, right? The first time, God's like, strike the rock. and Because the Israelites are thirsty, right? Should I do this in like a Jersey? Jersey yeah, Bible? Jersey well, in a minute. So, so he strikes the rock. And then later on, God, <laughs> like, like, you know, years and years, years, years later, the Israelites are thirsty again. They've been wandering around for 40 years, blah, blah, blah. God's like, hey, Moses, go to the rock, talk to the rock, and water's going to come out of the rock. So Moses walks up. He's like, hey, last time I had to hit the freaking rock to get the water out. I had to hit it to get the water out. I'm going to hit it again. Hits the rock. God's like, oh, oh, hitting the rock. I said, talk to the rock. And so, uh, you know, Moses is like, hey, you know, I thought, you know, if I'm going to talk to it, I might as well punch it, hit it with a stick. It's going to be better. It's like, hey, Moses, don't think. I said, talk to the rock. And that's the reason he didn't get uh, to lead the uh, Israelites into the promised land. How messed up is that? I like how we covered Jesus and Moses on the show. Hey, 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 hey we're equal opportunity. <laughs> Old and New Testament. We'll bring it. That's from Dave Arnold's Jersey Bible. Uh, so the... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, stupid. Okay, so, um, but you can download, uh, for five bucks, you can download uh, the sous vide dash, and what it does is it actually plots on a graph. Uh, you put the type of meat you're using, and the reason the type of meat that you use is important is because different fat levels, different meats have basically different, uh, uh, specific heats how how like how hard it is to heat them up to a different temperature and also probably different uh, rates of thermal conduction through them based on fat and all these other things so you want to um you want you know to enter the meat right then you can enter the shape of it uh which is uh you know usually like some form of a flat slab or a or a cylinder or a sphere uh and and then and the other cool thing is this program can customize all this stuff so there's there's a there's a a coefficient that's basically a shape coefficient that that changes the equations based on uh what the shape of the thing is and uh a pure flat plane is uh is a uh, the coefficient is zero for a 
you know, pure cylinder, infinitely long cylinder, coefficient one. And for a sphere, coefficient is two. Uh, but uh, in reality, right, these equations really only modeled for these kind of pure things. But in reality, what they do is, is they're like, well, an egg, it's not quite a, you know, it's not quite a sphere. It's more like, you know, a cylinder sphere. And so they're like, instead of it being a two, right, it's got a coefficient of 1.8. But the cool thing about this program is it allows you to dork with, uh, if you go into the expert level, you can dork around with the coefficients and you can see how changing that coefficient changes the rate at which things heat. But not to spoil it for you or anything, but the um, <clears throat> if you double the size of, a, of a flat slabs, we're talking now, infinite flat slabs, big steak. Uh, if you double the thickness, the amount of time it takes to get it to temperature will be roughly four times greater. Every time you double it, it goes up by a factor of four because it goes by the square. I think they're asking how they should cook it. I'm going to get to that. I'm being thorough. Jeez. Uh, so uh, here's, the other, here's the other bad news about it, though, is that uh, in terms of the way the meat looks, and, and when I say that, the way that the myoglobin, the proteins in it are going to get denatured, uh, which is what provides a lot of the color in the meat, it, the way it gets uh, denatured is radically dependent on how long it takes to cook the product. So what I would run a couple of different tests. Ovens aren't so good because um, the size of the piece of meat in it, uh, not just the thickness, but the size and how much moisture is coming off is going to affect the temperature, uh, how quick the surface can dry out because you're in a dry oven. I mean, it's just the oven's kind of inaccurate. Boiling is unfortunately so kind of hardcore. I mean, you can do it. Right. I would recommend getting this application to dork around with the different um, the different factors to kind of look at them. Um, but then I would I would go boiling water. Uh, you know, if you want to try some lower temp stuff just as a test, you can do what I've said before, which is you can run uh, uh, hot water out of your tap, which is you know depends on your tap. Might be hot enough to cook a steak. Not a, you're probably not going to be up to well done, but um, you can do the other thing. You can do is get a cooler. And uh, do some uh, tests that way. But the only way to do a real scientific experiment where everything is kept constant is to have something in a rolling boil. And, uh, you, you know, uh, if you're going to use boiling water, that is, a rolling boil. <coughs> and what that means is, is you're not going to want to uh, put a big piece of meat in because if you put a big piece of meat in, you're going to. Um, if you put a big piece of meat in, you're going to uh, drop the temperature of the water locally to the meat. The other problem you're going to have is you're going to want to try to keep the meat so that it's uh, even thickness all the way around, which is going to be difficult for you because uh, it's just going to be difficult because the meat's going to be moving around in the water. So, and anyway, it's going to be extremely hard for you to do anything else, like bolt it between two plates with with you know thumb screws so you can get the thickness exactly the way you want. I mean, you could do that. I've done it. It's dumb. I've done it. You know what I mean? But it is a pain in the butt. Uh, you, you're going to want to try to keep the thickness as accurate as possible because it is going to make a big uh, a big difference. So, Or if they're in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, they can borrow my circulator. Oh, I hear that. Yeah. That's a good offer. Uh, but here's the other things you're going to have to deal with is the how you're going to measure the temperature on the inside or you're just going to do it by visual inspection, right? Um, visual inspection, meh, meh, meh. You know what I mean? Uh, but on the other hand, temperature, meh, meh. You know what I mean? There's, there's not so bueno. You know what I mean? Now, uh, assuming that you're going to be into this stuff, you can get uh, digital thermometers now pretty cheap. I mean, an easy way to do it is to get like a multimeter that has a, a thermocouple thing and then you can get very fine thermocouples. They're down to like 
I think you can get like a thermocouple for like 60 bucks and you can get a multimeter that will read it on Amazon for like uh, – or even just a thermometer for another like 30 or 40. Uh, so I mean that's 100 bucks. I don't know whether you want to go that far but your average instant read thermometer, it has a bunch of problems. It's too big. It uh, It's not very fast and also it has a high enough thermal mass in itself to drop the temperature that you're reading. So it can be problematic. <coughs> um, am I being helpful at all? You're like, not really. You're not really helping her at all on her project. I gave her the name of the program to look at. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> Nastasha, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Well, listen, uh, if you have more questions, uh, come back. There's nothing I love better than a science fair. I used to, like, I don't know whether you, you could probably guess this. I had some butt-kicking science fair stuff. My dad is a double E, electrical engineer, and he used to help me out on my science fair projects. And one time he helped me calculate, um, uh, like, a bunch of a mirror array to get them all focused on the same point, and he was showing me how parabolas work and all that. And so we built a big mirror array that focused a hundred mirrors. I found this mirror shop that uh, gave me stuff that for almost nothing. I was like, but they don't need to be high quality. I'm a little kid and I don't have any money. So like, hey, hey, take these mirrors; they're almost free. And uh, and I glued the mirrors like, uh, and then we were like, you know, lighting stuff on fire. So some other kid was coming with like with their little with their little parabolic reflector hot dog oven and I walk in with like you know a four foot by four foot array of a uh, hundred mirrors uh, like four by four inch mirrors uh, and with instantly light paper on fire stuff was awesome anyway I love a science fair so if you have any uh, questions please write back and we'll address them yes sort of yeah it's sort of <laughs> what is it that you want me to say that I didn't say nothing just write back and let us know how deep it is yeah jeez you know. and look uh, I'm not endorsing the program. In fact, it has some issues. Like, for instance, the, the program sous vide dash, when you look at it, like if I change it from chicken to beef, it changes all my other settings. I was like, listen, I put the other settings where I want them. Why would you change it just because I changed it from chicken to beef? Come on. Sous vide dash. All right. Uh, another good place to look for that, if you can do the differential equations uh, for her, or, like I say, if she's incredibly precocious, Douglas Baldwin has a, uh, an explanation of how the equations work on his website about sous vide. Okay. Hey, Dave. Nice. This is Ryan Santos. What's the best way to cook a goose sous vide? Uh, looking to cook the legs to a comfy-like doneness. Imagine two different times and times, but not sure what those are. Uh, okay. So, yeah. With the, with the goose, I break it apart. I'd, uh, you know what you could do, actually? I don't know if this would work or not, but I wonder whether you could roast the goose so that it looks awesome and then just not serve the legs, cut the legs off, and then confit them separately. Mm-hmm. You think that would work? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would cook goose like I cook a duck, which means uh, 57 uh, degrees is my go-to, and if it's a little tough, not for, for no, the breasts I'm talking, once you remove the breasts, cook them at 57 for no longer than an hour, uh, and you know if, if they're a little tough, you can do like 58, let them cool down, uh, hit with the dog brush a la uh, modernist cuisine, and then sear off the goose to render out some of the, uh, the fat, make it crispy and delicious, I would confit the legs uh, in uh, vac. I would salt them overnight, uh, and er- salt and herb them overnight. Uh, you know, get rid of the excess salt. Uh, throw them in a bag with their own fat. You know, just with what they are, uh, and cook it at regular simmering temperatures, like eighty-five, and for a couple of hours. You know, until the bone feels free in the uh, in the thing, and you'll know it's done. Let them cool down in their own fat. When they're ready to go, pull them out, crisp them up, delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to our second commercial break. Oh,
Cooking issues. Uh, my schedule is totally thrown off today because uh, we don't have a clock in the studio. Nice. Anyway, Todd W. Oh, let me get the second question uh, from uh, uh, second question from Ryan. Secondly, I want to replicate Wiley. That's Wiley Dufresne, my brother-in-law's aerated foie gras recipe. I have a food saver and a vacuum box thing, but no chamber vac. I'm curious if I aerate the foie base in a whipper and then in the vacuum box, if that would help get the aeration going. I've had success doing this with ice cream base to aerate the ice cream. Just wanted a second opinion before attempting this with expensive foie. I don't have uh, his recipe in my head for the aerated foie, but I believe he uses foie fat. And uh, you could probably use a substitute for foie fat, like duck fat or something harder than that. I forget what it was. I, you know, next time I ask him, I'll, I'll uh, I see him, I'll ask him. But they didn't test out all those recipes with like boatloads of foie because it would be really expensive. They tested with an alternate cheaper fat. Uh, and I forget what it is. Uh, I don't think it was butter because it doesn't behave the same way. I think it was... I think it was duck fat or maybe a mixture of duck fat and butter. But anyway, um, the aeration that they get at WD or did, you know, um, back when they had this on the menu uh, with uh, ice cream was like the stuff was so aerated that it was like angel food cake. So if you can do that, you could probably aerate the foie. Um, I would run a test with a cheaper fat just to see whether it bubbles up. You know what I mean? Like do something with – do it with duck fat or do it with uh, butter to see if it aerates. It won't set. Uh, the same way, but just see if it see if it aerates. Uh, let me know. And next time I speak to Wiley, I will ask him what they use as foie substitute when they're testing out recipes so that they don't break the bank. Okay. Uh, Todd Bryant writes in, Hey there, I'm traveling abroad to Israel and Turkey. I'd like to go to Turkey and Israel, but I'd like to go to Turkey. We have done a lot of studies on Turkish uh, food stuff, and I've had some Turkish interest. Anyway, do you have any tips on how to bring back yummy and rare foodstuffs, meats, cured meats, cheeses, fresh or dried fruits, spices or liquids, in my luggage without them being confiscated by the Cretans at Customs? Thanks, folks. Brian. Nastasha, you're a sneak. What do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, just, just stuff it in the bag and don't say anything. Well, that's a helpful freaking tip. I mean, what's he? What? What do you mean? Well, okay. Look, obviously, vacuum bag anything so that the dogs can't sniff yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Uh, look unassuming. Yes. It. You know. It. You know. If you. If you. If they're racist, it helps to be. Uh. You know. Like look like me, boring, white guy. You know what I mean? That's helpful. Um, sad to say the truth. Um, uh. Well, I, you know, I've brought some evil stuff back in. I haven't done it recently. My sister-in-law brought an entire prosciutto back in her backpack. You know, but I think the dogs are much more hardcore now, and I don't know what the penalties are. Steingarten has an interesting thing about this. He just says what he has. He declares it, and usually they're just too, like, whatever to look at it. They just look at him, and he pretends. Another thing you could do, like with cheeses, is you can just say, hey, they're aged more than 60 days. And oh, then- yeah. I brought a cat on a plane that was one month old. And I told them it was eight months, and they were like, okay. Yeah, you got to know the rules and get around it. Look, no one's going to – look, if you're going to Turkey, get Salep Dunderma. It's not Dunderma. That's the ice cream. Get Salep, the orchid powder. And, you know, 
I don't know, it's not drugs. So you like tell them that it's not, you know, whatever. I never get stopped, almost never. Once in Germany, and I got hardcore hosed. But uh, other than that, I almost never get stopped. Man, I want people to write in and see what they think about this. Now listen, don't bring anything that it actually could cause an epidemic. Like don't bring citrus fruit from someplace to the United States, to California, and then, you know, totally shaft a billion-dollar industry because I don't want to give advice to help that happen. that make sense? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. Uh, now, let me see what we got here. Okay. We got a, a question in from Andrew. Uh, who says, uh, see, we should post a poll on the blog asking who listens to our show on a specific date, and we can even put options for live listening and po- podcast, and then that way we can figure out what's going on. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, <clears throat> All right, we'll look into it. But anyway, the main reason he's emailing is that his pressure cooker is broken and it sucks, and so he's looking to buy a new one. I've read on your various posts on pressure cookers and Modern Cuisine's chapter on them, and I'm still not totally sure what the best option is. Uh, I know you like Coon Recon which I do, uh, but Modernist Cuisine got me worried about the spring indicator becoming inaccurate over time. And there's also the matter of choice between a model with the large thing on top or the little pin. The All-American, the All-American pressure canner is what we're talking about, looks good, but he's unsure whether the sterilizer or the normal pressure cooker is the better option. The sterilizer concerns me because the tube from the valve going into it and how long it is, and the manufacturer says it's not to be used as a pressure cooker. What's up, Stas? I'm in the There's middle. There's a collar. There's a collar? All right. Let me finish reading this and I'll go to the collar. On the other hand, if I was to go to the All-American pressure cooker, how practical and safe is weighing down the weight valvey thing? What I want out of this is the best possible option for both canning and pressure cooking and cost matters uh, in so much as I want only have to buy one thing and what size should I get? Okay. I'm going to answer that in one second. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, David. It's Sasha. It's Ken Engber from Situate, Massachusetts. Hey, how you doing? Long time to speak. Long time to speak. How are you? All right. Uh, two things. One, I came back from France a couple of weeks ago and uh, brought back some foie gras and truffles and had relatively little difficulty, but a friend of mine who brought back more or less the same thing but also brought back a sausage, uh, the dogs were all over the uh, sausage, and then the customs people opened up everything. And mm-hmm. I looked into it a little bit, and it turns out that there's no uniformity. It's uh, very much discretion at the airport. So. Rules in one place will have no bearing on anywhere else. And you were coming into Logan? Uh, I was coming into, well, actually, it turned out we were both coming into Logan, although they were moving on. Right. Is Logan still uh, pretty hardcore? Uh, well, I, I had to uh, assure them that everything was cooked and sealed as if it were in a can, and they were skeptical, but they let me through. But I looked into it around the country. It's uh, not uniform at all. Right. And, uh, you know, I've had an issue, actually. The only time I've gotten hammered was with a sausage, so it's interesting. I mean, maybe... And I'm assuming the sausage wasn't vacuum-packed down, so it had probably more residual smell to it. No, it was, it was uh, from an open-air market that you couldn't pass by. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, obviously minimize stuff that the dogs can smell and know how to talk a good game and be prepared to lose everything, right? Well, uh, a yes, and also you need to declare everything. If, you, if, you, if they catch you, uh, you're in trouble. You mean, yeah, if they, yes, right. So say you're bringing some foodstuffs back, but just pretend that it's all legit and then if they catch you with it being illegit you could just say you didn't that this is a misinterpretation is that what you're saying yes the steingarten approach sounds right to me yeah very good uh, i have I, I have another question though all right uh it, a fairly simple one i think which is um i you know i, I cooked a turkey for thanksgiving and according to various charts it should have been in the neighborhood of five hours and it was done in about two and a quarter and other people have the same uh, same result. And what's going on is is it that the steam from the uh, 
um, from the stock underneath is steaming it and just cooking it much, much faster. What was the cooking technique? Uh, I, roasting, um, I roasted it like 325, um, uh, but I poured, you know, uh, a couple of quarts of stock into the roasting pan at the bottom. Right. I do that as well to stop from scorching. I don't know if that's going to accelerate it or not. Uh, and they, the, the numbers for how fast it's going to be done was based on open cavity bird? Yeah. Huh. It was, it was a 19-pound bird, and uh, it should have been, by charts, about five hours or so. But it, oh, every year it's the same thing. I, I, don't want to, uh, I, I, don't, I want to time it properly. I wind up using some chart, and it's always done two or three hours early. Well, those charts are always horrible. They're horrible. They're based on like bad. They're based on you know, bad stuff. We should get like one of these guys, like Doug Baldwin or something, to actually figure it out based on like circumferential measurement of the turkey's breast, and then <clears throat> approximate the gap. You know, the internal uh, void. Right. Um, I wonder whether this stock's going to make an appreciable difference. I don't know, but I will look into it. Okay. Alrighty. Good enough. Thanks. Take uh, care. Hey, thanks for calling in. All right. Quickly back to Andrew's pressure cooker problem. Or look, the American pressure canner, uh, I love them, and they're the only way to go for big, big things, and they go up to higher pressures than other things. They can make it up to like a you know 22 PSI, which I don't really think is necessary, but I think they're a pain in the butt because you have to seal a bunch of uh, hand knobs all the time to make sure that they're not leaking. They're made out of all aluminum, which means that you have to take care of them when you wash them with detergents, and some people don't like to cook acidic stuff in aluminum or you know basic stuff in aluminum, um, so they need protection. Uh, they tend to take up more space in the kitchen. Uh, I like it because it's very accurate and I can run experiments with it but for normal cooking I don't use it um, <clears throat> the um, I would use the I, Kuhn Recon is great I don't really care I mean like the spring I don't know if it actually loses accuracy over time or not but the spring is almost free. You can buy a bunch of springs if you're worried about it and replace it. I have the one that has the spring right in the center that goes up and down, and I've used it for you know, f- you know six years or something like that, and I've never had a problem with it other than I broke the handle off of it, and uh, I shattered the plate on the top. Uh, and so it's kind of weird looking, but the thing still cooks like a demon. Uh, you know, I had to replace the gasket once. <coughs> uh, I would stay away from uh, you know the, the models that um, – vent because I think it uh, kind of reduces uh, the taste profile. I'll get the biggest one that you can. Another thing is like some people will sell you two pots and then one lid which you can go back and forth. But I mean I like the Kuhn Recon. I mean they don't they don't pay me or anything, but I like them a lot. Uh and I haven't had a problem with them kind of going uh going south on you. I mean I just haven't. Uh there was I read a, some uh QC problems, quality control problems with Kuhn Recon for a little while, but I think they have that thing they have that thing fixed. So I would go for it if you have the money. I've never needed anything else. In fact, when I have to work at work, I bring my home pressure cooker in rather than using the crappy ones that they have there. Just saying. Not saying that they're crappy, the ones that they have at the FCI. I'm just saying that they're crap. Okay. By the way, my son thinks crap is a curse. It is when you're young. Uh, whatever. Okay. But not for an 11-year-old, we're okay? Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, and we'll round out on this. By the way, he has a best sign-off for us ever, which is keep, keep being awesome. You like that? <laughs> so nice. Anyway. Okay. So my other questions uh, are more about your personal views on subjects. So if you need to sacrifice them for someone else's more tangible questions, that's cool. Well, I won't. I'm going to end with them instead. I was wondering what your views are on the waste involved with sous vide or low-temperature cooking. I often feel guilty about throwing out Ziplocs after only using them for a few hours and I'm slightly horrified at the thought of what a restaurant that employs the method must go through. A bit hippie-ish, but I can't help it. All right. Uh, it is it's look kind of an issue, but on the other hand, I mean, you can reuse the Ziplocs. Nobody does because it's a huge hell mess to uh, clean them out, and they're all goopy, and if you're going to save them for a long time, it's a nightmare. I'd have to do a, a calculation based on total final usage of materials uh, and resources in terms of like the less amount of energy it takes to cook using that way versus an oven, the less you have to evacuate your kitchen because you're using low temperature instead of using uh, something that uses burns up a lot of gas. I'd also have to figure out how much plastic wrap I'd have to use to wrap the stuff afterwards if I wasn't using Tupperwares or something that seals itself. So there's all sorts of things, uh, but it is uh, something that um, – I should probably think about more than I do. What do you think, Stas? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, she's like, I don't care. You're too late. I'm not going to give you anything other than one-word <laughs> answers. Only one-word answers for you at this point. Anyway, my other question is what we're going to end on. My other question is about your views on using MSG in cooking. Many chefs know and actively say that MSG hasn't been found to have any negative effects, yet they will still go out of their way to include MSG-rich foods in their dishes rather than go for the pure stuff. Now, I know that in some cases these foods give complementary flavors, but there are other cases, like Heston Blumenthal using seaweed in a shepherd's pie, where the ingredient is purely for its umami boost. Okay. All right. It's a very interesting question. Look it. Uh, I, I don't use MSG. I just never got in the habit of it. But I do use a lot of MSG stuff, and uh, I am one of those people that happens to know because I've read all of the studies and don't use crazy post-hoc, ergo-propter hoc, well, I think illogical a, stuff. at least three podcasts about MSG. This is a separate question. Okay. If you had read the question or even listened to it while I was speaking, you would see it's a separate question. The question is... Uh, why do chefs not use it even though they know it's safe? And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think mainly it goes to perception. I think, uh, you know, when you're a chef and you're cooking something, you have to not only cook to what you think is right, but you have to cook to what your customers think is right, or you're going to alienate a lot of people. And the high end people, right, uh, there's a whole group of kind of farm to table, like, you know, as you said, hippie ish people who won't consume MSG on principle. Right, And so then to put that in your dish cuts off an entire group of people from, uh, from using it, right? from, from, from enjoying your food. And it injects a level of controversy into your menu that you might not want to inject in. You know, it's just, you know, unless, unless you're like Dave Chang, who's like, you tell me foie gras is bad, so every menu on the, every menu item is going to have foie gras. So shut up. Like, he, he can do, does stuff like that. He'll make points. But, you know, unless your point is to make a point about it, you don't want to alienate someone for something that you can do in some other way, especially if you haven't grown up using it as a spice. You get around it in other ways. There is no functional difference between uh, the uh, MSG uh, as a separate seasoning other than it adds a little salt and, uh, as well because there's a sodium in it uh, and uh, the stuff that you get from sources like uh, seaweed. But I think it, it – it would be a problem for a lot of chefs to go ahead and put it on the menu because why you know they're in the business of, of making money so making a statement like that probably isn't in their best um, business interest 
On the other hand, maybe it, it maybe it is that they're just a little squeamish about. Using, in other words, like there's things that like uh, there's things that you believe in that you don't do yourself, or there's things that you're not willing to go to. I don't know. Your point, I think, is that maybe they feel a little dirty using it, even though they say it's okay. That they feel a little dirty doing it, and maybe you're right. It's an interesting question. I have to think about it. And you know what I'm going to do? Going to go buy myself a package of MSG cooking issues. <laughs>